Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In the future, do you imagine a world run by robot overlords? Your life is no longer in your hands, and your health is controlled by artificial intelligence. Eh, Not quite. This week, we're going to explore the world of artificial intelligence and medicine. We'll look at how computers and machines might work together to make things better. And in our SAS class, we're going to find out what's missing from AI today that may keep it from taking over tomorrow. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Techo, and I'm going to spark your human intelligence by getting deep into the world of AI. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. What do you think about when you hear the term artificial intelligence? HAL from 2001 A Space Odyssey? Skynet from Terminator? Data from the Star Trek The Next Generation series? Maybe that AI movie Spielberg did. Did anyone watch that? AI in movies is often a mix of entertainment and a little bit of horror. But when we look at where AI is now, it's easy to see that reality is even more interesting. It's already in our lives. For every HAL, Skynet, and Data, there's an Alexa, Google Home, and don't forget those self-driving cars. AI is creeping into our lives on Facebook, Snapchat, and all those great suggestions that we get for Netflix. It's no surprise it's also showing up in an area very important to every single one of us, healthcare. While we may already be encountering some machine learning on apps to help us stay active or be aware of possible health problems, the future holds so much more. One of the more promising areas of interest in AI is diagnosis. We talked about the human process in the disease detective episodes a few weeks back, and now it seems that with the help of machines, we could get even better at figuring out our future health issues. Our first guest has been putting AI diagnostics to the test and has revealed that there's more than just promise, there are results. Her name is Sally Baxter and she is a postdoctoral scholar at the University of California, San Diego. How does artificial intelligence improve diagnostics? So I think there's a couple of different ways that artificial intelligence or AI can help support diagnostics in our clinical practice. One is through screening. So there are several diseases that are based on image-based screening. So examples would include, you know, examining moles to see if they're melanoma or uh, in my field, looking at patients with diabetes to see if they have diabetic retinopathy or problems in their eyes due to diabetes. And 
you know, there's a, a lot of people that have diabetes, a lot of people who have suspicious moles. And so one way that AI could help support uh, screening would be to help automate some of those detection methods and not require people necessarily to uh, have an in-person exam uh, for those things. The other way I see it supporting diagnostics is through supporting clinicians who are, um, you know, face-to-face with a patient, particularly uh, if the diagnosis would require or the monitoring would require a lot of uh, time and effort. And so one example would be in radiology, uh, where uh, we track the sizes of tumors, for example, to see whether someone's tumor is growing over time. Uh, AI could help automate some of those measurements on imaging and support clinical monitoring that way. So I think there are quite a few different contexts where AI could be helpful. There are situations, even for humans, where an image is all it takes to make a diagnosis. So I'll take my field as an example. There are certain uh, appearances of the back of the eye, the retina, that in ophthalmology, you just look at the image and you know what the diagnosis is. There's actually a term that we have in medicine for that, which is called pathognomonic. So when, when some appearance is pathognomonic for a certain condition, then it's very easy to identify based on appearance alone. Now, there are a lot of other diseases where the image alone or the appearance on whether it's the retina or chest x-ray or other imaging modalities, and, and that often requires the clinician or the doctor to integrate that imaging information alongside other things they know about the patient, their history, you know, what medications they're on, what has happened to them in the past, what lab markers they might have. And really, we have to be able to look at the whole picture with the image just being one part of it. I think for diseases where the image really makes the diagnosis, those are the ones that are very conducive to population-based screening. For the ones that require a little more of the whole picture perspective, where the image is just one element of the story that's required, I think automation based on an image alone would be difficult because you could have the same image represent multiple diagnoses depending on what else is going on for a given patient. But what I see happening in the future is that we can use AI to integrate not just imaging data, but also people's clinical data and be able to help support physicians in that diagnostic process, particularly for patients with difficult or confusing diagnoses. This has already been done in some fashion in in the world of clinical decision support, where there are moves to develop models that extract information from the electronic health record, for example, and create what we call a differential diagnosis or a list of possible diagnostic possibilities to help tip physicians in in the right direction and using big data to help support those. But right now, I think that's still in its infancy, this sort of integration of imaging data and clinical data. But I think that's one of the most exciting avenues for future research. It feels like there's still something missing. I had a chance to talk with Lisa Sanders, who is the inspiration for the show HouseMD. She also writes that column, uh, Diagnosis. And I quizzed her about the idea of people who use Dr. Google 
WebMD, and mm-hmm. then they come in. And I was really shocked. She said, it's okay because the human element becomes part of the diagnostic process. It kind of shocked me. Is there a place for human interaction when we start relying on AI-based diagnostics? Absolutely. I, I don't think that AI will ever truly replace physicians entirely, even though there are a lot of uh, press coverage and articles in the media that you know, spell out this doomsday of AI and automation totally replacing you know, the human workforce. I don't think that's going to be the case, certainly not in medicine for a number of reasons. And as she mentioned, you know, the human element is critical. Even with AI diagnostics, you still need an overarching workflow. I think there's definitely still a human element to the overall workflow and the overall process. And not just that, you know, anyone who's familiar with AI knows that the quality of the output and the accuracy of the classification depends in large part on having huge training data sets and on the training data sets being accurately annotated. And so one thing that we deal with all the time right now on the research end of things is, yes, there are lots of digital data that are being generated right now between wearable devices. Everyone has, you know, their Fitbit or Apple Watch. People have electronic health records when they go to the doctor. We have all these images that we take of people, but they're not that useful for making diagnostic predictions unless you have training data that are annotated. Um, and, And most of the algorithms right now that are sort of approaching go live and, and real world deployment still depend on supervised learning. So I think that acquisition and curation of data sets, validating them to make sure they're accurately annotated and sort of overseeing that whole process is still going to require a, a huge amount of human effort and ongoing monitoring. This has been a big point of discussion with the FDA, trying to figure out new regulatory pathways for these software algorithms which are not sort of classical medical devices, but they're still products that can have major impact on human health. And how we continue to monitor these products after they go live and make sure that they are making accurate diagnoses, that's certainly going to involve human validation. And finally, I think at the end of the day, these conditions, a lot of them, when people think about their health and about disease, that human aspect of the physician-patient relationship is still a central part of, of medical care. And there are certainly many situations where we can have a diagnosis, we know the treatment, but sometimes there is no treatment, or sometimes the treatment may prolong your life a little bit, but doesn't necessarily improve the quality of life. Certainly, there are times where our current, the limits of our current technology and, and medical knowledge are that There is just inherent suffering that can come from disease, and we still need that human element because there's so much, I think, of the physician-patient relationship that is healing unto itself, even without all these sort of modern innovations and fancy gadgets. There's something central to just that human interaction. And where I see AI being really helpful is to hopefully reduce some of the grunt work and the rote tasks and the huge administrative burdens that um, are imposed upon physicians today in our sort of, you know, complex regulatory environment. And 
hopefully allow doctors to be able to focus on that relationship and the things that brought them to medicine in the first place. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Though there's fear associated with artificial intelligence and machine learning, There's no denying that over the last three decades, computers have completely altered the way most of us live. So who's to say that artificial intelligence can't help us to live healthier? There are more than a few ways this could happen. Health information systems and aggregated health data from those apps I mentioned earlier can lead to better education. We could use data from social media to be able to identify outbreaks. It's been done with Yelp to determine the source restaurant. We may even be able to use Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social media apps to find out whether an outbreak of infection has actually started. And then there's mobile health, which is allowing healthcare to be more accessible in remote areas around the world. Our next guest has looked at the potential for societal change in health as a result of artificial intelligence. In order for this to happen, however, there has to be a new word for us to understand. It's called health intelligence. His name is David Buckeridge, and he is an assistant professor of epidemiology, biostatistics, and occupational health at McGill University. What is health intelligence? I guess you have to start with intelligence, which has been difficult over, uh, to define, I should say. I mean, one approach has been to say that since we can all agree humans are intelligent, that something is intelligent if it can interact like a human. And in fact, it was that kind of intuition, I guess, that gave rise to something called the Turing test, which essentially says that if a machine is intelligent, then when you're interacting with it as a human, you would not be able to know if it's a human or a machine. That's kind of the intelligence we often think about when we talk about things like artificial intelligence as being general uh, artificial intelligence or strong AI, is that you can really interact with some entity and not even perceive whether it's a, it's a human or machine. It has to be able to do a bunch of kind of subtasks very well. And that's where a lot of the specific different areas that you may have heard about in artificial intelligence, like natural language processing, which allows a machine to communicate a visual perception or computer vision so a machine can perceive things in the environment, the ability to learn from all the data it, it's seeing, and that's machine learning. Movement is robotic. So, you know, to have that level of, I, I should say, artificial intelligence is, is, it requires a lot of tasks. If we back up now and think about the question of health intelligence, what does that mean? Well, I've thought of that, and others have too, as really referring to kind of the broader capacity of not just artificial, but also humans to do intelligent things with data with the goals of really protecting, promoting health, and also preventing and treating disease. 
So in that sense, we can think of health intelligence as kind of both a, a collective intelligence. So as a society as a whole, are we making kind of intelligent decisions about the kind of things we invest in from a healthcare perspective and how we deliver that care? But it can also be a very, very personalized kind of intelligence. So when we think about you know precision medicine or personalized care, how can we use all that data to really do the best thing for the one patient that we're trying to treat, treat at a given time. I imagine much of this data could be coming from the internet as well as the scientific literature. How are they used to be able to help make health intelligence possible? I mean, if we go back to the example of personalized medicine, which is, is our precision medicine, which I think is one that most people have probably heard of or c- can imagine how, you know, at some high level anyway, how would you want to bring all this data to bear on making better decisions? Well, that, that kind of decision really tends to use, like I said, deep data about one person, and it's trying to tailor the diagnosis or therapy for that one person. So, so what kind of data? Well, the, the classic case, or the one that, that's often brought to the forefront, is where we're trying to personalize or make precise something using genetic data. So data about a patient's genome, or, or possibly, uh, in the case of cancer, about the genome, genomics of a tumor, or even infectious diseases about the genomic pattern of an infectious organism. So in those cases, you're really trying to get really into the detailed data about the, you know, the real genetic sequencing or the expression of proteins or something in individuals or tumors. But there's a lot of other data that we can use, too, that's available from a day-to-day basis and is often much more relevant. So things like just, you know, the history of laboratory tests people have had or the medications they're on, the diagnosis they've had, or even, you know, more and more real-time data about heart traces and things that may come from, you know, sensors and clothes you're wearing and things like that. All of those data are really what, you know, what, what's driving, I would say, a revolution right now in the sense that we, want to, we really almost need AI methods and we have that scale of data so that we can detect important patterns in you know, those very rich array of data so that we can then make more precise decisions around diagnosis and therapy. So it, it really, I think in the end, it's about bringing together these different types of data and having this you know, more sophisticated analysis of it that can help really try and drive, in this example, personalized decisions. But the challenges really come in, you know, not just having the data, but how do you learn those models and those kind of you know, automated systems that you want to do that can help with predict with diagnosis and therapy? How do you evaluate those models? And then even more challenging, how do you safely and effectively incorporate them into a larger healthcare system? So it's not a bunch of one-off tools, but you know, kind of like we were saying before, we really have health intelligence as a society so that we're really, if you will, making the best use of these data, not just for one patient at a time, but also for making, you know, as a population, everybody healthier. Makes me wonder then, can we use personalized medicine kind of in reverse so that we can use health intelligence to help change society, not just in healthcare, but also out in the rest of the world? Well, yeah. And I think this is what, one of the really exciting things about this new world we're in now, where we have access to much more data and data are being generated from many different types of devices, is that we can move outside of healthcare institutions when we think about healthcare, and we can even move outside of healthcare when we think about health. So, you know, for many years, we've really been struck with monitoring people when we can get them into an environment where we can measure them. And, you know, that's led to a very strong focus on, on disease, on cure, on therapy, which is, I think, obviously, um, you know, led to amazing revelations in terms of, or revolution, sorry, in terms of what we can do. But the capacity to think about, you know, where people spend the vast majority of their life and make the vast majority of their decisions that lead to disease or to wellness. So in the community, in the home, 
there is, I think, now the potential to really understand not only like from an observational sense, studying what, what may lead people to become unwell or may lead people to be in situations where they make decisions that would favor health or unhealth or you know, not, not healthy, but to actually try and interact with people. So, you know, the, the digital platforms that are now ubiquitous in the form of smartphones and, and, you know, things inside your home that can record your voice and you can interact with them directly. These are all devices that have a capacity to not only gather data, but also to think about embedding intelligence in that, you know, depending on how you think about it, it can become a bit eerie and almost sort of Orwellian. But as long as it's happening with people's consent in a way that they understand and that they are in some way driving this can become a very powerful connected environment for promoting health, uh, just as we're seeing it now in, in academic health centers and in leading hospitals and also the same kind of data really driving, you know, advanced care, uh, clinical care. So really, there needs to be a participatory element for humans as this uh, health intelligence is being developed and eventually delivered, rather than just simply looking at us as uh, content providers. Absolutely. I think... Uh, you know, and that, that's certainly the case when you think about people as patients, but it's also the case when you think about people as people within the healthcare system that are providing care. So, you know, I think there's, there's been some very high profile uh, studies come out now showing in the last year, showing that advanced artificial intelligence methods, namely neural networks, can do some tasks in medicine at a level of professional clinicians, but they're very, very targeted tasks. So things like being able to interpret x-rays for a very specific type of, of chest lesion, for example. You know, so, some, some AI systems can do that very, very well. And the reason they can do that well, though, is because they're focusing on a very tightly constrained problem. So let's look at this image and let's look for a, a lesion in the image. And there's lots of well-structured data in the, in the form of historical images with diagnoses attached to them that these AI models can, can use to learn something from and then go ahead and try and predict in the future. But there are many problems. And in fact, I would argue the vast majority of problems in, in healthcare and medicine that are not nearly as well-structured as that and for which the data are not in, good, in a good format. And there are different types of data. They're hard to bring together. So for example, something like a question about you know, you actually have a tumor in your skull and you want to have it removed. That takes a lot of manual expertise and, a, you know, a number of things that were very, very far from having a machine do that. Or even at a provincial scale, if you think about what drug should a provincial drug formulary pay for? You know, these are questions, again, where it's not like it's a really simple question. There's values involved. And it's hard to think about how you could just have an artificial intelligence solution to that particular problem. I have an idea then maybe we could use health intelligence as a basis for social policy that leads to things people might actually enjoy as opposed to, say, the current ideas where everything is always taxed. I mean, sugar taxes, vice taxes, everything. Could we possibly see health intelligence being used to help the way people see the world so we actually have a better one down the future? I think that's a great a great way of looking at things, and that is certainly a potential. The challenge is, and this is where we get into a little bit of the sticky ethical side here, is you know, a lot of the kind of feedback that we're talking about and behavioral cues that we're talking about are, are, are highly effective and are actually used you know, currently by many, I would say, uh, for-profit enterprises in interfaces where they're trying to interact with people and encourage them to do something, usually buy something. 
And so, you know, these, these behavioral principles that we know how people react in certain situations and we can build systems to sort of influence those, those, those sort of behavioral tendencies, if you will, um, we have to be a little careful about how we go down that road. And so I think that's why I was saying before, you know, with people's consent and with people's engagement, I think this is a wonderful way to, you know, better engage with people. And, you know, if they're in a position where they want to be making change to help them make change. The challenge, of course, becomes is that not everybody in society is in the same situation to be able to take advantage of these kind of technologies Mm -hmm. or to be in a life situation where they really are making their choices. Sometimes people's choices are often quite constrained by their financial situation or other other aspects of the situation they're in right now. And so we also have to be a little careful about these technologies when they're put out there. Um, Are you know, are we are we in some sense alienating or making it harder for some people to take advantage of them and possibly actually making inequalities in health and in opportunities, you know, broader or worse by introducing new technologies in some way. And so not to say that, that we should, you know, not proceed, just that I think it's really important that we always have an eye to inequities potentially being exacerbated by introducing these these kind of enabling sorts of technologies into a society we know there are already inequalities in terms of how people can can have the capacity to take control of their own life. It's SAS class time, and today we're going to address that one concern that always seems to pop up when we talk about AI and humans. No matter how close they may come to sounding and looking like us, they're still computers controlled by a black box. Our guest teacher has explored this worry and how to make AI perhaps not more human, but more humane. He is Alex John London, and he is the director of the Center for Ethics and Policy at Carnegie Mellon University. In your writings, you have discussed the concept of a black box system of health and medicine with artificial intelligence. What is that black box? And from your perspective, what is lacking? Black box is a term that's kind of gotten out in the public and captured its imagination. It's, a, it's something that we should be critical about. Because a lot of things uh, are black boxes to the people who use them. You go to the emergency room, you have, you're worried you might have the flu. The person at intake could run a little algorithm, but it's an old-timey algorithm. It's a piece of paper where they ask you a bunch of questions, they give you a score on your answers, they add those things up, and they say, yes, we think you have this condition or not. How that works could be a black box to that person. And this is sort of the, a precursor to artificial intelligence, these sort of expert systems. They're not a black box to the people who made them. That is to say, why you get a certain score for answering, yes, I have a fever or not. Well, there's somebody who knows the answer to that because that piece of paper is trying to codify the knowledge that the expert had so that a non-expert could use it. What artificial intelligence does that's a bit different is – The model that in the old expert system was put into it by the human, that expert knowledge, that gets created by the artificial intelligence out of the data. And in some cases, some of the the techniques that are used, like convolutional neural nets and deep learning, some of those things right now are opaque to us in the sense that the model that it generates out of that data We can't open that box up and look and see exactly what that model is. I find it interesting that you talk about opaqueness. We we always have this romanticism with mystery, whether it be, you know, door number three on Let's Make a Deal or what is going to be revealed in that reality show next. 
Have we become romanticized with the idea of that black box? Or are we essentially just falling for the old joke that we're just waiting for our robot overlords to take over? <laughs> People are, there are legitimate worries about the black box. People have a difficult time very often with the amount of uncertainty that there is in medicine. So you get very frustrated when you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I think this might be what you have. What do you mean you think? Like you have a medical degree and you're a scientist. Isn't there a test you can do, a scan you can do? Or, you know, this is what you have. I'd like to try this medication. It might work. The, those sorts of might, could, people feel very uncomfortable with that. And there are other disciplines by and large, structural engineers don't say, yeah, I think that building is going to stand up. <laughs> so there are areas where, uh, of, of life where we can handle uncertainty in a more or less very reliable way. Medicine really isn't one of those areas. There's a lot of uncertainty. I think people want to look to artificial intelligence as a way to eliminate that uncertainty. It, it has the romanticism, I suppose, of the computer that can handle vast amounts of information at the speed of light, make computations that would be impossible for you know, a human to make in their lifetime, and that somehow out of that, they're going to get the answers. And I think in some areas, that's not too far from the truth. So I think in some areas for diagnostics, the ability of these systems to take medical images, say, create models of what it is to have a broken bone, to have diabetic retinopathy of the, you know, in, in your retina, and produce very reliable diagnostic tools, that is probably something we're going to see in our lifetime. The idea, though, that you're going to have artificial intelligence that's going to take the genome and all of a sudden tell you exactly what the treatment ought to be for your cancer, it's, a, it's an ambition. I hope we make progress on it. Probably not something you're going to see uh, reliably uh, in the next few years. <laughs> for me, it's weird because as a scientist, we always work on the uncertainty principle. It almost seems like we do need to have some of that uncertainty in order for us to be able to accept AI moving forward. It's interesting. AI was once, you know, the, an earlier name for the field that I think would have avoided some of the popular misconceptions. You know, it was automated statistical analysis or something along those lines. But that's boring. Something a lot less. Yeah, really boring, right? Um, <laughs> no. But probably closer to the truth of what you get. So a lot of the outputs from artificial intelligence systems, you know, are probabilistic judgments. And the uncertainty in the underlying uncertainty in medicine is ineliminable. So medicine is one of the few places that's very different from other areas in science. There are lots of things that we give to people. We know that they work, but we don't know why. You know, for 100 years, we knew that aspirin worked to alleviate pain without having a clear sense of why that was the case. And there are diseases, neurodegenerative disorders, for instance, where we're not sure about fundamental aspects of what causes them, whether people that we diagnose as having the same disease, whether every patient that we diagnose with Alzheimer's has the same disease. In cancer, we diagnose cancer because of the place that it's located. So if you have cancer in your breast, it's breast cancer. But now we think really there might be many, many, many different kinds of cancers because really what matters isn't where it's located, but you know, features of the underlying pathology, where that's, whether that's genetics or other things. Well, as we change Part of what's unique about medicine is we're still discovering the underlying causes of all these things. 
Well, that affects all the things that makes artificial intelligence work because artificial intelligence works from data. And if you've got data that captures the phenomenon you're interested in, then artificial intelligence can make sense of it very quickly. If your data doesn't capture the relevant stuff, the models that the AI creates are not going to be that great. So think about if you had an AI back when medicine was about humors and bile and, you know, the, the black bile and blood and, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the doctor would say, well, we think you have too much blood. We need to bleed you. If all the data that you put into that system was about how much blood they had, how much bile they had, it's not going to be a great system. And in some areas of medicine, the data that we have are probably closer to that kind of data than we'd like to admit. So the point I'm making is the AI does great given the quality of the data you have. And if you don't have great data, the AI is not going to be able to magically produce good science, true theories, true models out of bad data. Well, that's it for this week's SASCast. I hope it has helped you to see AI a little less like Ultron and more like Big Hero 6. There, there. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. We want to thank everyone who has been listening. Your support is overwhelming. We're showing our gratitude by taking those questions from you and answering them on the show, sometimes as an entire episode. Send me a tweet at JATetro or an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all of our guests. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Kelsey Campbell is our on-site audio producer and editing whiz. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. Have a great week. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Sass.